You're listening to Sermons at High Peak. You know, one of the worst holiday candies in the world has to be candy corn. Am I, am, am I, do I hear lots of amens on that one? But you know, I think right up there in the top two or three, maybe top five if you're crazy, has to be candy hearts. I mean, those things are kind of nasty too, aren't they? I mean, they're hard as a rock usually. Unless they get stale, then they're sort of soft, and that makes them better. Actually, so you should eat last year's candy hearts this year. They probably taste better. But, you know, the flavor, it's not quite that great. But the little sayings, you know, they can be sort of cute. Like you get your typical ones, right? Some people see the ones, you know, they say, be mine or love you or you and me. Those are the typical ones, the ones I call the boring ones. Anyway, uh, and then you started noticing, I remember over my lifetime, as I became an adult and technology started to get more popular, you started getting ones like text me or email me. And I found out that you can actually have customized ones made that say my snap and it'll put your Snapchat username on it if it's short enough. Uh, some of you are going, what's Snapchat? But anyway, just ask your kids or grandkids about that. But then there's some really weird ones out there. For example, someone who might be a stalker could hand you one that says, I won't be ignored. <laughs> That'd be a strange candy heart to get. Uh, in the last two years, I'm vaxxed, no COVID. Those are a couple that you might see. And then instead of be mine, they actually have one that says, you're mine. A little bit possessive, are we? I think that would be kind of strange as well. But you know, we think about these as people fall in love, and someone might say, I gave you my heart. And uh, my dad used to always tell the joke, well, that would be a bloody mess, wouldn't it? Sitting there holding that. Um, but do you really give your heart to another person? In the spiritual sense, I mean, in the emotional sense. The, there's an emotional way that we say that. Uh, in romantic love, when you fall in love and you say, I gave you my heart. What does that mean? You know, in the Bible, it talks about the heart differently than we think about it in our culture. For us, it's almost purely your emotion, your strong feelings towards someone. But in the Bible, it's so much more. They believed the heart was kind of the place where the will sat. For us, that's more like the brain, the mind. And so when you say, you know, you have my heart, it means... Uh, your will and my will are the same. I want to do what you want me to do. And people who gave God their heart, it would say they're giving God control over their life, their decision making. And that's not what most romance means by that. Most romance, you know, it's just kind of emotional when you think of that. But you know, that's really what like a marriage ought to be. I gave you my heart. In other words, I've committed myself to you to a point where you and I are one. We are going to walk on one path. And yes, we find ourselves because of work schedules or whatever, we might be separated. But our path of life is still always going to be together. And when you give God your heart, it's the same thing. The Bible says that the marriage relationship is an illustration of the relationship between Christ and his church. And when we give our heart to the Lord, 
we give our will over to him, our commitment. The problem is a lot of Christians struggle to do just that. Now we're going to look at a passage in the book of Hebrews as we get back into Hebrews. Last week we started this uh, study through Hebrews in, book, in the book in chapter 3. The first six verses, it began this idea of Jesus as superior to Moses. The first couple of chapters were about Jesus being superior to the angels, which was significant in their time because angels were almost worshipped as deity by many people. And we get a little bit of that today. But today, we're going to look at the second passage in this next part of Hebrews 3 and 4 that talk about Jesus being superior to Moses. Now, you and I as Christians, that's not that hard for us to say. But if you had Jewish blood, if you came up in the Jewish faith, that's a big deal. Moses was their emotional leader, their historical leader, their founder of their faith. You know, we think of Christ as our founder, uh, and they think of Moses as their founder, their key figure. And so we're going to look at that, and what we're going to see today is actually a negative example of people who didn't follow Moses properly, and that's going to remind us that sometimes we don't follow Christ Properly. And so we're going to look at this passage starting in verse 7, which is actually a quotation from Psalm 95. If you opened up Psalm 95, incidentally, it's the exact same verses, verses 7 through 11, as we get in Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 11. Uh, it's almost a word-for-word -word quotation. And what is Psalm 95 about? It refers back to a time in the wilderness. It refers back to a time, you see, you know the story, uh, when the Israelites cried out to God and said, please desperately send us a deliverer, someone to free us from this slavery. Pharaoh has made life torture and we desperately want out. Send someone to free us. And God sent Moses. And through all the miracles, the 10 plagues, finally the, the destruction of the greatest military uh, uh, army on, on the face of the known earth at that time, Egypt, destroyed with just water washing over them as the people crossed on dry land and then the Egyptian military tried to follow them and the Red Sea just flooded them and drowned all of them. And uh, it was an amazing thing, a cr incredible, an incredible miracle following 10 incredible miracles. And you'd think that after all of these great things that they saw, that they would never violate their commitment to following God. They'd follow him through a wall. They'd follow him through a storm. They'd follow him through anything. <laughs> and yet, just a little while later, they got to a place that later was named Meribah because of the meaning of that term, and we'll look at that in just a second, these people started immediately questioning God, almost immediately after seeing these miracles. And we look at that and say, what a bunch of dolts. What a bunch of idiots. How foolish can you be to see these great miracles? If I had seen God do a miracle like that in my life, I'd never quit following him. The thing is, we've all seen it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've experienced the greatest miracle that's ever happened, and that is the Holy Spirit coming and living within you. And yet we still fail. 
we say we gave our heart to the Lord, meaning we give our will to God, and yet we are tempted every day, and many of us fail every day to obey, just like the Israelites. And so this author of the book of Hebrews, we're not sure who he is. I think it's Dr. Luke, but some people say Paul. Others said Onesimus. Some say we don't know and we can't know, and that's probably closest to the truth. He wrote, now quoting that psalm, which referred back to that event, where out in the wilderness they got thirsty, and they cried and begged for water, and God made water gush forth from a rock. Another miracle, another incredible evidence of God's power and his provision and love for them. So let's begin in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 3. And by the way, I'm reading from the New King James Version today. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, now let me just pause for a second right here, okay? And there's something interesting here. Almost the entire rest of the Bible, whenever it refers to someone speaking out and it becoming scripture, it talks about God's word or Christ's teachings. This is one of the few places, there are a few others, but this is one of the few places where it specifically refers to the Holy Spirit as the one doing the speaking. Now, is that significant? When you see something that's different than most of the rest of the Bible, you should say, there's something interesting about that. What is it? And you might want to ask the question. Now, we don't have the author of Hebrews here to interview. Why did you say the Holy Spirit instead of Jesus or God? We can't get that, but we can get some clues. Is it saying that the Holy Spirit, who uh, is the key to helping us obey the Word of God, because it's the Holy Spirit's job in us to inspire us to follow right and to convict us when we do wrong. And could that be why the author of Holy Spirit said, the author of Hebrews says, "Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial, in the wilderness." That word in the trial. And the word rebellion are the words for the names of that place, one of which we know of as Meribah. Meribah, meaning rebellion. In verse 9, it says, Where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with them, with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my Wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You look at that, think about that last thing he says. Because of their swaying, they're going away from the truth. It says, He swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The concept of rest is a key idea throughout the scripture. After all, God made this, the, the whole world in six days, and then what did he do? What did he do? He rested, right? Now, was God tired? Did speaking the world into existence make him a little bit irritable and I got to get a rest and I, I need to recover? My, my muscles are getting sore? Or, or was it maybe jumping down out of heaven and landing on earth and taking the dirt and forming Adam 
Maybe that's what it was. Boy, you know, working so hard to, to mold his eyes and his face just so with that, that mud. No, that's nothing for God. He rested for two reasons. One, so that we would follow the example knowing we would need that rest. And number two, it was a prophetic rest. One day you'll enter this kind of rest for all eternity. But he said, these folks, they're not going to enter my rest. For them, the rest was the promised land. They said, we're working, we're miserable, it's horrible. Would they never ever have to work again if they had been obedient? No, they'd still have to work. But they would have a rest in that they didn't have an authority over them, absolutely making life miserable. And so the promised rest was the promised land. And you and I today, even Paul talks about those who die are resting. We're looking forward to that day of rest. That day of when our life begins. Just this morning we prayed for three different people. And I don't know about the poor young boy. I didn't know the family. I didn't know him. But I do know uh, Pam and I, I knew my friend Matt Crisp. And, and they have entered their promised rest because of the gift of grace. Does that mean they were perfect? After all, look at this passage. It says, uh, these people didn't follow me. They weren't obedient. Uh, they went away from me. And in my wrath, I said, you'll never enter my promised rest. So what's going on there? How can you and I enter that promised rest if we're not perfect? Well, we have to think and understand something. And that is that all of us get a hard heart. And this morning I want us to think about something that I call spiritual heart disease. Spiritual heart disease. The heart is something we give to the Lord, but too many times we try to take it back. And then we mistreat it by the way we live our lives. And so we think of it in this way as the center of who we are. It's our center of gravity, spiritually speaking. And sometimes it gets damaged by the way we live. And the first thing is that we have to diagnose these three sicknesses, these three illnesses that this passage is talking about that cause this spiritual heart disease. And the first one is you get clogged arteries. Have any of you ever experienced clogged arteries? You may be experiencing it right now and not know it, sadly. But you know, when your body sends all those things to the heart, the blood pumps and there's stuff in it that shouldn't be and it clogs up your arteries. And, uh, you know, a lot of the experts and the medical doctors, they tell us a lot of that has to do with what you eat. What you put in your body can cause this. High cholesterol diets can cause that. Um, I, I know this. I know at our first church we had a, a sweet lady. She was also our treasurer, just a fine woman. And her name was Hazel. And that woman exercised more than anybody in that church. She was a tiny little thing. And she ate healthier than anybody I've ever known before or since. Barb's nodding her head. Hazel, whenever you uh, looked at the, the potluck dinner at the church, you could always point out Hazel's because it was the one that was perfectly healthy. And sadly, it was the stuff I didn't want to eat because I don't... Don't like the healthy food, but uh, uh, you try it. Sometimes she made those things. She made some diet foods that were desserts that were actually good. And I'd say, Hazel, Hazel, did you make that? Yeah, you need to show Barb how to make that because it's good for you. 
She ended up having four clogged arteries and had to have bypass surgery. And I had to go visit her in the hospital. She survived it because she was strong, thankfully. But even though she was probably close to 70, maybe a little over 70, when that happened to her, her good diet and her exercise helped her get through it. But she still had them because sometimes this is genetic. And often it's not what you put in your body, it's who you relate to. And if we don't spend our lives living in the family of God, we'll have clogged arteries that can kill us. But once you give your life to Christ, if you keep living a life where you're not filling yourself spiritually with the right things, then it can be a bad thing. Verse 7 says, if you will hear his voice, we have to listen to the word of God. Listen to the teachings of Jesus Christ as uh, recorded in scripture. Listen to the Holy Spirit as he reminds us of what we have learned and he convicts us of the right decisions to make in our lives. Later on it says, and they have not known my ways. I believe that's in verse 10. If we don't fill ourselves humbly with a healthy dose of God's word, then we're likely to end up with spiritually clogged arteries. We partake instead of the junk food of popular ethics and psychology of the day often contrary to scripture. We eat the fatty meat of false teachings. Sadly, many Christian teachers who call themselves Christians are, are teaching very unbiblical things for very self-serving reasons. Intentioned, uh, intentionally uh, selfish teachers and preachers who, who are more interested in glorifying themselves and building their own kingdom than glorifying God and building his kingdom. And we listen to that and we fill ourselves up with it to our own detriment. Well, how do you overcome this? We've got the disease. If you don't fill yourself with the word of God and relate yourself to the family of God, then the result is spiritually clogged arteries that can kill you. How do you overcome this? Matthew 4, 4. But he answered and said, it is written, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Get in the Word. Study it for yourself. Spend time reading it devotionally. Spend time studying it carefully. And spend time getting together to learn it. That's why if you're not in a Sunday school class, you're missing out. If you're not in a regular Bible study with other Christians who, are having, who have the, the same heart value of, of scripture that you do, then you're missing out. And you're going to end up with spiritually clogged arteries. The second thing we learn from this, in addition to that, is that people get a weakened heart muscle. Alex Bishop said this. He was about 23 years old when this happened to him. He said, it never got to the stage where I attempted self-harm, but there was a time where I couldn't stand on a train platform for fear that I might jump. His health condition had gotten so drastic and dire that he many times wanted to kill himself. It was December 2020, and he had just gotten COVID. He said it happened very strangely. I've never heard a story like this. I've heard of people getting sick with COVID. I got it myself. Our whole family has. But 
This was unusual. This was very different. He said he was on his way to a coffee shop, taking a walk, and he was living in Europe at the time. I believe it was France, in Paris. And he was on his way to a coffee shop. And as he's walking, he suddenly felt the whole street just spinning, and he got dizzy. Now, I know how that feels. If you've ever had vertigo, that's what it, he said he was uh, experiencing. Well, he went to a doctor, and he ended up testing positive for COVID-19. But he had a strange case of it because it didn't just have the normal things. If you've had it, you know the first round, it was like a very severe flu. But he said he had a dizziness. And he couldn't hardly stand up. And he laid down. But even though he was laying down, he couldn't get his breath. And he wasn't able to breathe very well. He said instead of losing his sense of taste and smell, everything smelled like rotten or like uh, uh, cooked onions or raw onions I'm sorry everything smelled like raw onions and he began to have this chronic fatigue always tired his inner ear got messed up and so he was constantly dizzy and and experiencing vertigo and tests showed that his heart was affected severely it weakened his heart muscles intensely and they finally came up with something that they've called now long COVID, where you get COVID, but you don't get over it for a long time. Have you heard of this? Apparently, it's still pretty rare. Not a lot of people have been diagnosed with this incredibly severe form of it, but it led to him feeling terrible, miserable, and suicidal and depressed. Now, he says today, a year later, more than a year later now, that he's slowly improving. He feels better. He's able to move around and walk. He can exercise a little bit. And his exercise has kind of strengthened his heart a little bit. It's not been permanent damage. But you know, as we live our lives, our heart, that place where we make all of our decisions and we say we've given our heart to the Lord, it gets hardened and weakened. The clogged arteries come from what we put into our life but this hard heart, this weakened heart comes because we're not exercising God's will in our life. They say that one of the best things you can do to strengthen your heart <clears throat> is to exercise. Now, I, I don't exercise like I ought to, but I'm thankful that while I was in the hospital, they did all kinds of tests on my heart, and they said I had a good, strong heart, which I, I'm glad to hear. You know, maybe the exercise of carrying around all this weight did it, but I don't know. But I do know I need to get exercising. As I, as I get a little bit healthier, I, I start thinking about when I'm planning to get back at that. But you know, people who exercise often have a strong heart, and they do much better. It's, spiritually, we think of exercising as doing God's will. As doing God's will. I, I think of it like this. You know, you, you have a spiritual bank account. And just like your regular bank account, you want to save, and so you put deposits in what happens? The more you put in, the more you have. And over time, you know, if you got it invested something, you might get some interest. But even if you didn't have it on any interest-bearing account, just you put it in there and save it, and over time you've got a good amount. And you're economically strong. You know, economics people talk about how we should live our, our uh, lives financially. They say, you know, make certain you get $1,000 in the bank for emergencies, and then don't touch it after that. Act like it's not there unless you have a serious emergency that you can't afford. 
Well, that's what you want to do. You put a little bit in there. When you're exercising God's will, every time you obey the Lord, it's like putting a spiritual deposit in your spiritual bank account. The problem is too many of us are overdrawn. You know what happens. You spend more than you have in your bank account, you get overdrawn. And eventually they cut you off and say, you don't get any more money because you don't have any more money. You bounce a check here and there and it's embarrassing and uh, terrible and makes you feel bad. And then what happens? You've got no money. And then some big bill comes due. The car needs to be fixed. You've got to repair the air conditioner or you've got to buy a, a new refrigerator, whatever. It's the same thing spiritually. Every time you disobey the Lord, you withdraw from that bank account. And the more you disobey, you become overdrawn. And therefore, you don't have any confidence in God. You don't have any confidence in yourself. You don't have this thought, hey, if I just live my life the way I'm living my life, I'm doing the right thing. And I know the Lord can use me because he blesses what I'm doing. As you obey the Lord, he blesses you. The problem that I see is too many people get mad at God for not blessing their lifestyle when their lifestyle is filled with withdrawals from that spiritual bank account. But what do we do? What does it say here? Look at verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 3. It says, Do not harden your hearts as in the, the rebellion or as in Meribah, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me. They were out there and they said, God, you don't care anything about us anymore. Who cares about all those miracles? Who cares about how you defeated the Egyptians for us and freed us from that misery that we begged you to free us from? Now we're going uh, uh, to die because we don't have enough water. And so God planned on doing a miracle. And he did one. He poured forth water from the rock. But it's seen in Scripture as being a testing. They didn't trust the Lord. They complained to him instead. In verse 10 it says, Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. See, we all suffer from this spiritual heart disease, this problem with clogged arteries and with a weakened heart muscle. And if we would cleanse our lives and our lifestyle and then begin doing all that God has called us to do, living for him, obeying him, then our heart gets stronger. Our arteries open up and we're able to have blood flow and we're much healthier. But see, there's a third ailment that we see here, and that is an infection in your blood. It's also called septicemia, spiritual septicemia. You know, my mom, at the end of her life, began to get urinary tract infections over and over again. And eventually one of those urinary tract infections went to an infection in her bloodstream. And that infection caused her heart to be weakened, but more importantly, it also went to her brain and caused a bunch of mini strokes to the point where she literally could not stay awake most of the time. She barely could speak. She could hear us and open her eyes and sort of react. And I remember it was painful to watch that last month or so. We got the first call around Thanksgiving in 2010. My sister told me, she said, she's getting really bad off. And then we got another one. She's back in the hospital again. 
And then we got another call. She said, it's not looking good, and if you want to see her before she goes, you probably need to come. And that's why we d decided to, and around Christmas time of that year, we went. And uh, it was very... Um, it was very nice to see the way you all loved on us and helped us during this time to, to know that we weren't alone through this. The last time I saw her alive, uh, I remember the two days, the last two days we were there. Uh, the second to last day was a Sunday, and we went there and we watched the Green Bay Packers play the Chicago Bears, the last game of the season, the Packers had to win to get into the Super Bowl. And see, I grew up, that's my mom and I would sit and watch the Packers. My sisters were off at college. They didn't really care. She didn't really care, to be honest with you. But she knew I wanted to watch them, and so we'd sit there and fall asleep to the Packer game. That was in the 80s when they were terrible, so it was a lot to fall asleep to. But I just said, hey, Mom, you want to watch the Packer game? And she kind of went, you know, like, yeah, that would be good. So I cleared out the room. Everybody went somewhere else. I don't even know where they all went. And that's what I did that Sunday afternoon. And then the next morning, we got up to drive home. And uh, on the way out to come back home, we stopped and saw her in the hospital. And I remember getting in the car. And after saying our goodbye and ready for our long drive home, telling Barb with tears in my eyes, that's probably going to be the last time I see my mom alive. And it was. It was a painful thing. A couple days later, my sister called and said she had passed. You see, it was a disease in her heart, in her bloodstream that got her. And you know, spiritually, we have the same problem. We have an infection in our blood, and it can go to your different body parts, and it can shut them down and cause serious life problems. And that's what's happening when you and I are disobedient and don't follow the word and we fill our lives with things we should not, with sinful habits and sinful thoughts and th sinful uh, entertainment, all of that. We take in too much of that and it weakens us and it can kill you. And it might be that God will say of you and me what he said of the people of Israel. They always go astray in their heart. Like a person who's trying to get healthy and they plan on doing it. So they start to walk and then they're able to run and pretty soon they're up to running two miles a day. They've cut out all the junk food and all the sugar and all the high fat content and they're eating healthy. But then somebody offers them something. Maybe it's just a little piece of candy and just that little bit pulls us back into that bad lifestyle. And it's the same not just in the way you eat and the way you exercise, but the way you live. You're standing around with a bunch of friends and you hear them gossiping about somebody, talking about a person negatively behind their back. And instead of stopping or at least walking away, you participate. It's that little white lie. You know, it's not always the big things. It's not always big things like becoming a drug addict or an alcoholic or, you know, a, a, a serial... Uh, um, you know, sex offender or something like that. It's, it's the little things that we do that leads us into a negative and disobedient lifestyle. That little white lie. Well, there's no such thing as a little white lie. They're all lies and they're all wrong. And then there's that morning, you know, when you're tired and you don't get up for church, <laughs> you decide to stay home, 
And then the next week, it was so easy to do last week, so you do it again this week. Or you were going to church on Wednesday nights and then decided, eh, let's leave that out. And then you leave it out some more, and pretty soon you're not as active in your Bible study life. And now you're not even involved in church at all. And a lot of you say, well, look at us, we're here. Yeah, you are. But will you be three months from now or three years from now or three decades from now? It's so easy. And we start taking those little withdrawals. It's not like you go to your bank account and you withdraw, you know, $10,000 on a new boat. It's you go and you have your card and you swipe it for an extra coffee or some snacks. Uh, you go out to lunch instead of bringing your lunch and it's seven ninety seven, and and then you got that subscription for some TV streaming service that's $19.99 a month and you look at your bank account, pretty soon you add up all those subscription services and they're $239 instead of just, oh, it's just 20 bucks a month and then it all adds up. And what I'm talking about is the little wrong decisions that we make and they all add up and lead us to being unfaithful people. And we've got that infection of unfaithfulness. How do we get through that? There needs to be a cleansing through repentance. When you look at your life and ask God to examine your choices and say, Lord, search me and know me and know my thoughts. See if there's any unfaithful, sinful thing in me. Holy Spirit, speak to me that I might know when I'm being wrong and when I'm a failure so that I won't always be going astray anymore, like it says in verse 10. In that moment that you notice sin, confess it and repent immediately. If it's a thing that's leading you to sin, get that thing out of your life. If it's a person, a relationship that's leading you to sin, uh, eliminate that relationship, as painful as that may be. If it's a place that you regularly go that leads you to sin, stop going there. And get another person to help you to be that consequence or that, that confidentiality partner that, that helps you get through it. It's sort of like antibiotics or taking a shot to clean up the infection in your life. The people of Israel, they didn't follow God and they didn't uh, repent of their sinfulness. So when it came time where they were to stand on the banks of the Jordan River and, God, or, and Moses sent in 12 spies to go in and check out the land and see what it was like, the majority report came back and they said, there are giants in the land and it's too big. We can't win a battle. So we shouldn't go in. Let's just stay here. Let's go back to some nice place that we saw on the way. And you know what happens? All of that sinfulness led to that moment where they forgot the miracles of God, where he defeated the greatest army, and they forgot, so now they don't believe he can defeat this tiny army. Where he brought forth water from a rock, and when he brought manna from heaven, and he provided quail, and they go into this place that's so filled with milk and honey, as they said. It was a symbolic, poetic way of saying there's plenty here. 
that God will provide for you. But they said, well, we just don't know that we can overcome. And they focused on themselves instead of on what God can do. And when they had two witnesses who said, we can get them. Joshua and Caleb said, we can beat them with God's help. We'll win. And they wouldn't follow. They wouldn't do it. And as a result, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. Now, the amazing thing about this passage is it says, they tested me and they tried me, but he still showed them his miracles for 40 years. Throughout all of that time, he still was working in their lives. He still was helping them and trying to help them come through. And as a result, when it was time to go in, the next generation got to see the promised land. Because God worked on them for 40 years, a whole generation. But don't you want to experience the grace and the blessings of God today through your faithfulness? Yes, we've got a promised rest in eternity but he wants to bless you even before then today in your obedience. 132 years ago in 1890, a man named Francis Thompson wrote a poem. And that poem inspired millions of people and still is inspiring people today. The name of that poem, when I say it, some of you will say, I, that sounds familiar. It's called The Hound of Heaven. Think about that idea for a second. The Hound of of heaven. What do you use a hound for? A good hound dog could be a good hunting dog. I went online and I saw that there's a list of uh, Field and Stream magazine says what are the 10 best breeds for hunting? And there two different kinds of hound dogs were on that list. Hound dogs, they're good hunting dogs. So it's no reason God would send a hound from heaven to hunt you down, to draw you back. And so Francis Thompson wrote this poem about a rabbit that was being hunted by a hound from heaven. Now, symbolically, he was the rabbit. And the hound was the Holy Spirit of God. See, this was a man who had given up his studies to enter the ministry. But then after a period of time in the ministry, he gave that up to become a physician. And by the end of his life, he was just a writer. The poem was inspired by his own life, his own situation. He'd become ill, and his illness, it was some problem in his brain that caused constant pain. He was always having headaches, debilitating kinds of headaches, and eventually it got so bad he went and sought help of a doctor, and a doctor prescribed for him laudanum. And that laudanum would ease the pain a little bit, but, you know, our bodies are such that we sort of adapt, and it just got worse and worse, and... He had to take more drugs and more drugs, and it got to the point where he became so addicted that every day was spent looking for a new way to tamper down this pain and this suffering. He was in a real struggle, and he lost everything. He gave up his ministry, trying to become a doctor. He had gave up his medical practice, and it got to the point where uh, he decided to just become an author, but he was so impoverished that he had to sell matches on the street. And little paper that he would find to uh, roll up to make cigarettes, he would write on them. And he'd write poems. That's literally what he wrote his poem, The Hound of Heaven, on. A little paper from cigarettes. Finally, he was able to 
get some degree of relief towards the end of his life. And when he died, they collected all of his poems together. And people said that they were some of the most beautiful spiritual poetry you've ever written, or read, rather. But that one poem, The Hound of Heaven, the story of a rabbit being sought after by God, was his story of how God was trying to win him back. In the midst of all of his affliction and suffering, he knew that God was after him. And he finally gave in and surrendered to him. See, Hebrews 3 follows that same pattern. God wants you. He will pursue you. You may have a heart diseased by sin and disobedience, a failure to obey and to do as the Holy Spirit and His Word has called you to do. But if you'll just stop and let Him capture you, let the Holy Spirit do a work on you to repent and restore yourself, to begin to exercise God's will in your life, to cleanse your life by removing the sinful ways and restoring the positive spiritual things, then God will be able to bless you again. And that blessing will mean that you will be a wonderful tool in the hand of God. You can now become a service and a ministry inspiring other people. You know, I, as far as I know, Francis Thompson never really saw how... People were inspired by his work, especially that one poem. But none other than a man named G.K. Chesterton said that when he read that poem, that it touched his life in such a powerful way. G.K. Chesterton was a believer and a philosopher who also wrote a lot of fiction. And then there was another writer who, you know, had some moderate success. Maybe you've heard of him, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings. He said that when he read Thompson's poetry book in 1913, the writing helped inspire him and to use his fiction as a way to bless people, teaching them the idea of right versus wrong and how when we do what's right, that it positively affects other people. And so he wrote the book The Lord of the Rings, which has inspired many since then. I wonder if you think you could be an inspiration to the people around you. I know you can't do it alone. It can only come when you allow God control of your life. When you allow him to touch your heart and to heal it, to cleanse it, to strengthen it, and to make you useful in serving other people. Are you willing? Do you want to see that happen? Do you want to be blessed today and then have that hope of a future in heaven? Because while this passage says they never got to go into the promised land and that generation that came out of Egypt didn't except for two people, Joshua and Caleb and their families, you and I get to see it if we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, asking forgiveness for our sin and living for him every day, repenting of every sin we ever commit. Do you need to repent? Do you need to restore? Do you need to re-cleanse yourself today? Thank you so much for listening to our sermons from High Peak. I'm Dr. Kevin Purcell, the pastor of High Peak Baptist Church. And if God has really spoken to you through this message, please get in touch with me. You can go over to highpeakchurch.com and look for a way to contact us. 
Or if you want, you can come directly to me at pastor at highpeakchurch.com. We're also on Facebook, searching for High Peak Church. We'd love to see you. We have our services every Sunday morning at 11 a.m., Sunday evening at 6 p.m. in our fellowship hall, and then also midweek service on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Please come and join us. We've got classes for all ages. God bless you, and thanks for listening.